You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, today we are starting a set of sermons through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Uh, We have kind of been chomping at the bits, waiting on this moment for a while, and we are finally here. Now, why not the whole book of Genesis? Uh, Well, Genesis is 50 chapters long, so that would take a minute. Uh, to get through, and by the way, we're going to cover four, ver- or four words today. Uh, so it would take us a minute to get through the whole book of Genesis. But uh, when you think about the book of Genesis, it's divided into two sections. Uh, there's two sections that make up the book. Section one is what you might call prime, uh, uh, primeval history. Uh, it's chapters one through 11. It's, uh, it's, it's basically God showing his people how everything came into existence. That's the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And then you have section two, which is called patriarchal history. Uh, that's chapters 12 through 50. And it's where God shows his people how they came, the people of Israel, God's people, how they came into existence. So that second part tracks the story of Abraham, then uh, his son Isaac, then his son Jacob, and eventually his son uh, Joseph. It, it tracks the story of God's people, how they uh, came into existence. But over the next couple of months, we're going to take section one, uh, chapters one through 11, and do a deep dive into it. Now, why the book of Genesis? Uh, Why are we going to give some time uh, in this book of the Bible? Let me just give you a couple of reasons for that. Reason number one, why Genesis? First, Genesis gives us the beginning the beginning. It points us to the beginning. It gives us the beginning. Now, think about the last movie you watched. Uh, the last movie I watched was um, American Underdog. Anybody seen it? Uh, a few of you have seen it. It's a great movie. You should totally watch it. Uh, it tells the, the story of Kurt Warner. Uh, he was the only, it's a really an amazing story. He was the only undrafted uh, quarterback to lead his team, one, to a Super Bowl victory. Uh, So he did that. Secondly, he uh, was a Super Bowl MVP, only undrafted uh, quarterback to ever do that. And he was also the NFL's MVP. Uh, He was the only undrafted quarterback to ever ever do those things. And by the way, Jimmy, we're talking about football right now. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Okay. But he was the only undrafted player to ever do uh, those things. Now, if you walked in at the end of the movie, uh, here's what you would have seen. Uh, You would have seen uh, Kurt Warner celebrating. Uh, He's celebrating with his team, a Super Bowl victory with his team and his wife and all that. And you would have seen me crying in the movie theater. Uh, You would have seen all that going down at the end of of the movie. Now, why is that? Well, you would have to know how the story began. See, if you walked in at the end of the movie, you wouldn't know that Kurt Warner played for Northern Iowa, but it took him three years at Northern Iowa to finally get a starting quarterback job. Three years at Northern Iowa, the the Super Bowl MVP guy. Three years of working and working and working before he could finally uh, get the starting uh, job. Like thousands of others who graduate college, he finished with the dream of playing in the NFL, but uh, you wouldn't know if you just walked into the end of the movie uh, that he was undrafted. Uh, you wouldn't know that uh, while being undrafted and sort of still trying to make it, that he spent time stocking shelves at the equivalent of what would be like our Brookshire's. You wouldn't know that. Uh, you wouldn't have seen him dragging his family around uh, playing for the Iowa Barnstormers, right? An arena uh, league team. You wouldn't have seen any of that. 
And because of that, this climatic scene, him celebrating a, a Super Bowl MVP and winning the Super Bowl, all of that going down, because you wouldn't have known the background, you would not have understood the tears, right? You would have been looking at me thinking, what in the world is wrong with you? Now, why is that? Well, it's because the beginning sets the stage for the story. And if you don't know the beginning, you, it's just hard to interpret and see and appreciate the story. The, the, the beginning helps us interpret. It helps us understand. It helps us appreciate the rest of the story. Maybe you could think of Genesis like this. Genesis provides the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible's story stands. And this is one reason Genesis is so important. Genesis means origin or beginning. It's taken from the first three words of the Bible, in the beginning, right? It's just the transliteration of, of that word, in the beginning. And that's a fitting title because it's the book of beginnings. It's the beginning of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It's the beginning of the whole of the Bible. It's the beginning of everything. This is the gift that Genesis gives us. It gives us the beginning. And if you want to understand the rest of the Bible, you first have to understand the beginning of the Bible, Genesis. So Genesis gives us the beginning. That's one reason we're going to work through this book together. Secondly, Genesis helps us understand our world. Um, when I think of Genesis, um, I, I would put it like this. Genesis is full of uh, what you might call front page issues. It deals with the issues that we deal with. It, it's asking and answering the questions that we ask and that we answer. Where did the universe come from? Where did we come from? What does it mean to be human? What's the purpose of our lives? What is marriage and where did marriage come from? What does it mean to be male and female? What is wrong with the world? Have you ever asked that question? What is wrong with this world that we inhabit? Right? Why do things like death and murder and rape and incest and prostitution and polygamy, why do all these things exist in the world? Where do they come from? All of those questions are answered in the book of the beginning, in Genesis. Or maybe you could think of Genesis this way. Genesis gives us what we might call a world view a way of seeing and understanding and inhabiting this world that God has given us. That's what Genesis gives us. Genesis helps us understand our world. And then thirdly, and this is where we're gonna to go today, Genesis introduces us to God. It introduces us to God. I love how the Bible begins. It's really an amazing beginning. Just look at the first four words. This is what we're covering today, the first four words. Look at how it begins. In the beginning, man. Uh, hold on, that's not how it starts, is it? No, that, that's not it, because the Bible is not primarily about you. It's not primarily about me. It's not about any created thing. No, no here's how the opening phrase of the Bible goes. In the beginning, what? God. The main subject of the first sentence is God. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the main subject, the main character of Genesis 1 is God. Now, listen to Derek Kidner. He uh, wrote a commentary on Genesis. He points this out. He says, it's no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible. Now, why is that? Well, he says, because his name dominates the whole chapter occurring some 35 times in all. 
So God is a big deal in the first chapter of the Bible, right? He is the main subject, the main character of the first chapter of the Bible. But God isn't just the main character of Genesis 1. God is the main character of the Bible as a whole. The Bible is about God. All of history is about God, right? Everything is about God. And Genesis introduces us to this main character. It introduces us to God. Now, what is God doing in the scriptures? There's a lot we could say, but let me just give you two sort of ways to frame what it is that we're seeing about God, what God is doing in the Bible. And here's the first thing we could say about it. In the scriptures, God reveals himself to us. God is revealing himself. Um, A.W. Tozer, he once said that the most important thought you will ever think is the one immediately following the word God. Like what just came into your mind? God. The next thought that you think is the one that determines everything about your life and the life to come. But I think it's always interesting just to take a step back from, from that reality of like, God is the most important thought you're ever gonna think and to ask the question, from who or what did you get your thought of God? Like, where did your thought of God, when you think about God, what you think, where did what you think come from? For many, it comes from a combination of places. Uh, we pull maybe a little bit from the Bible. We pull a little bit from maybe our family tradition, what we sort of absorb there. Uh, we pull a little bit from sort of the cultural folklore of like what the culture is teaching us about God around us. Uh, we pull all of those things together and there's our conception of God. But we need to ask the question, how in the world do we know if our view of God is right? How do we know if it's just a made up sort of version of God? How do we know that? How do we know if we've got the right God? Here is the only way to know you have the right God. It is to go to the place where God reveals himself. That's the Bible. That's the only way. It's to open up the Bible and read because it's there in the Bible that God shows us himself. The Bible is what we call special revelation. It's the place where God has said, for all of those who want to know what I'm like, this is the thing that's going to trump everything else. Yeah, you can see me in creation, but, but this is the thing that's going to supersede everything else. It's my place of special revelation. It's the place where I have chosen to say, this is who I am, where I'm giving you a glimpse behind the curtain so that you can see my heart and the who that makes me up. If you want to make sure your view of God is not make-believe, this is where you go, the scriptures, because in the scriptures, God reveals himself to us. Now, what do we see about God in the opening pages of the scripture? What do we learn about God? Let me just point a couple of things out from Genesis chapter one that we learn about God. God reveals himself as one. We learn that God is one. Now, let's remember the context. Genesis was written about 3,500 years ago. So that's a long time ago, right? And it's written by Moses to Israel. And it's written in that little time period when God had busted the people of Israel out of Egypt, but he had not yet brought them into the promised land. So they are wandering in the wilderness. That, that's when the, the book of Genesis was written. Now think about the original audience uh, for the book of Genesis. Uh, see, today when we read Genesis chapter 1-1, the thing that's most shocking to us is it says, in the beginning, God. 
What's most shocking to our modern culture, our sort of materialistic, secular culture is the Bible is asserting that there is a God, right? That, that's the most shocking thing to our culture. Uh, but to that original audience, the most shocking part of Genesis 1-1 is that it didn't say, in the beginning, gods. That, that's what was most shocking then. Now think about the people of Egypt, right? If you go back to the, the, the book of Exodus, and think about them. Their pressing question was not, is there a God? Their pressing question was, how many gods are there? They had a God for everything. The sun, the moon, the, the rain, they had a God for everything, right? So that was their pressing question, how many gods are there? So in our modern culture, the opening line of the Bible announces, in the beginning, there was God. But to that ancient culture, it announced, in the beginning, there was only one God. This is the first thing we learn about God in the Bible is he is one. Uh, but we also see in these opening parts of the Bible that God is three. God is three. The opening chapter of the Bible gives us what we just might call our first glimpse of a triune God. What does it mean for God to be triune? What, what is the Trinity? Uh, Wayne Grudem, his uh, systematic theology book, or we've got the smaller one out there, his Bible doctrine book says this. Uh, this is how he defines the Trinity. That God eternally exists as three persons. So God exists in th as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And each person is fully God and there is one God. That's the Trinity. So it comes in those three parts. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. It makes perfect sense, right? I mean, it's so easy to understand, right? <laughs> And in Genesis 1, we see our first traces of the Trinity. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who's the us? Well, the us is the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have our first sort of traces of the Trinity, this glimpse of our triune God. One God, but this one God existing in three distinct persons. So God is one. And we learn that God is three. God is triune. And in these opening chapters of the Bible, we learn that God is eternal. That God's eternal. This means that God has never ceased to exist. He's always been. Genesis 1.1 records the beginning of the universe. Okay, that goes back a long time, right? the beginning of the universe. But Genesis 1-1 does not record the beginning of God. Because before there was a universe, God was. God has always existed. There's never been a time before God. Now, it, it, if you might not feel the sort of separation uh, between you and God when you hear that. So, so let me help you. The turnover on earth is exactly 100%, right? It's coming for us all. Like there are about 8 billion people alive right now. And if we fast forwarded 100 years, roughly 100 years, uh, here's the amazing thing to consider. The, the planet's probably gonna have a couple of times as many people as it does right now. And not a one of them will be alive right now. That's crazy to think about, isn't it? That, that if we go 100 or 120 years into the future, not a single person alive right now will be alive then. But God has always been. 
He is and will forever be. This is what it means for God to be eternal. We live by the clock, right? There was a time when we weren't and then a time where we were. That's your story, that's my story, that's all of our story. But not so with God. God is outside of the clock. Before Genesis 1-1 was, God was. And Moses put this truth to poetry when he sung in Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's Moses just praising God, saying you are eternal. There's never been a time where you were not. God has always been. He is and he will forever be. God is eternal. Here's the fourth thing we learn about God in Genesis that God is powerful, that God is powerful. Now think about how Genesis 1 reveals God to us. Uh, The universe came into existence. We're talking the the universe came into existence. That's, That's stars, that's galaxies, that's solar system, that's planets, that's trees, that's monkeys, that's lions, that's everything. The universe came into existence. And notice how the Bible shows the universe coming into existence, like everything happening, everything being created. Look at how, just notice how it shows it happening. God doesn't lift a finger. All God does is says a word. That's our God. That's how powerful our God is, how other our God is. He just speaks it into existence. Now, now if you want to, again, just feel the difference between you and God, can I just give you an exercise? Uh, Today, uh, go home and uh, open the front door of your house and then just, I mean, holler like as loud as you can. Just go for it and, and, and look at your house and say, house, be clean and see what happens. Or for all you parents out there, look at your kids and say, kids, obey, and just see how that goes for you, right? Or lawn, be mowed, or clothes, be, just, it's just not going to work very well, is it? But this is the God we have presented to us in the scriptures, an all-powerful God, and that all-powerful God is to be revered. If you fast forward to the end of all things, John sees this vision of the people of God gathered around their God. And listen to what they, what they are saying to God. This is Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. They're looking up to God and saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why is that? But why are you worthy to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. When you read Genesis 1, it is meant to stir up in you a deep reverence and awe and worship of God. That's what it's meant to do. Now, maybe you could just stop and and ask yourself the question really quickly, is that in me? When I think of God, is my thought of God so big that it's stirring up awe and reverence and worship in me? Like, is Revelation 4, 11, does it happen in me? Can I I find my heart expressing words like, worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power? Do I find my heart saying that to God? 
See, Genesis 1 is, is meant to give us this God who is big and powerful to, to inspire worship and awe in our hearts. We learn that God is powerful. God reveals himself this way to us in the opening chapters of the Bible. And then fifthly, we learn that God is beautiful. God reveals himself as beautiful. Beauty is an attribute of God. It, it means that God is the sum total of all that we find satisfying. And this is the God we find in Genesis 1 through the act of creation. We find a beautiful God, a God that, that when we look at him, he is the sum total of everything that our heart desires. So just think about creation for a moment. Think about this world that we inhabit. This world is now broken, but this world is still beautiful, isn't it? This world is amazing. Just think about the amazing ways that God has made you in this world. Uh, think about the fact that God has made you with taste buds. And God made taste buds on one side and paired taste buds with something as magnificent as cappuccino chocolate ice cream. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? That these two things come together. I, I'm just telling you, you take a bite of that, you're going to believe that there is a God. It's amazing. He created a world with the beauty of friendship, the beauty of children, the beauty of marriage. He's created a world with something as stunning in it as Mount Everest and the Grand Canyon. He's created a world with the beauty of music and art, with the joy of sport and adventure. This is our God. And those beauties are meant to function like a signpost. Now think about this. Every beauty in this world is meant to function like a signpost. But what is a sign for? A sign points to the point. That's what a sign's for. A sign points to the point, to the destination, to the place where you're actually trying to go. That's what a sign is for. Now imagine you driving to Disney for a moment and you're a few hundred miles from Orlando uh, when you see a sign that says, uh, Disney! I mean, big, bold letters, Disney, and it's like, you know, 100 miles ahead. And in, in that moment of seeing the sign, you pull over the car, you stop the car, you, you get the family out, and you announce to the family, we have arrived, we are at Disney. Now, what is your family going to do? They're going to think you're crazy, right? right? It, 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 you're not at Disney. You're still 100 miles from Disney. You're at a sign that is pointing you to the point. Now, in the same way, every beauty in this world is meant to point us to the beauty maker. Everything that you find desirable in this world is meant to point you to the one that is ultimately desirable. Every beauty in this world is a sign in that way, meant to point you to the beautiful one, the, the one who is the sum total of all that we find satisfying. And this is the God that we find in Genesis 1, a beautiful God, the, the beauty maker. In the scriptures, God reveals himself to us. And even in the opening chapters, we're seeing a God like this, an amazing God. Now, why does God reveal himself to us? Why is the Bible the place of special revelation where God sort of flings open the curtain and lets us see him? Why is that? Why does God reveal himself to us? Answer, 
so that he can be known by us. God reveals himself to us in the scriptures so that he can be known by us. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. God, God didn't create the world because he was lonely. It's not why he created it. God created the world out of an overflow of love. His heart just exploded. That, that triune God, God the Father, Son, and Spirit. There was such an exploding amount of love, an overflow of love coming out of the triune God that it, that it spilled over and there you have creation. Creation happened out of an overflow of love in the triune God. And now that heart of exploding love has invited you in. God invites you to know him. Maybe we could say it this way. This is like one of the ways to summarize the point of the Bible. You were made to know God. I want to look at you again and say that. You were made to know God. In J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, in the third chapter, it starts with a series of questions. Let me just give you a few of those questions that he starts with. He says, what are we made for? Answer, to know God. What should we aim at in this life? Answer, to know God. What is the best thing in life bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else? Knowing God. What of all states that God ever sees man in gives God most pleasure? It's when we are knowing God, he says, knowing him. There's nothing more important than you knowing the most important being in the universe. You were made to know God. I love how Paul says it in Philippians 3.8. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth, surpassing worth, he says, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen, th there are many good things in this life. But there is only one of surpassing worth, Paul says. And here is that one thing of surpassing worth. It is knowing God. And I'm just begging the Lord to convince us, or maybe for many of us in the room, it's just reconvincing us today that there is nothing more pressing, there's nothing more urgent, there's nothing more satisfying, there's nothing more enjoyable, there's nothing better than knowing God. Nothing. There's nothing more important than knowing the most important being in the universe. And let me just make a, a, a clarification here. I'm not talking about knowing about God. I'm not talking about knowing a few facts about God. I'm talking about knowing the living God personally, experientially. Like you know God. God did not design your heart to be content with a few facts about him. Your soul has been designed to find its satisfaction in the in, in, not, not just about knowing about, but in the greatest being in all the universe, in God himself. This is what, this is what you were made for. So if you came in this room today and you were well-fed, loved, clothed, and yet you still find your heart crying out for more, there is a reason. 
Here's the reason. You were made to know God. And until you allow the beauties of this world to lead you to the beauty maker, that deep ache will not go away because you were made for him. You weren't made for the signs. You weren't made for these sort of worldly beauty. You were made for God. All these sort of worldly beauties are signs pointing you to the point, the one that you were made for. So let me just ask you that when you think about this week, just the next six, seven days of your life, what is the main ambition of your next week? I mean, just think about all the things that it could be about. I've got this to do and that to do and all these things going on in my life. But, but here's what God is wanting to say to us from the opening lines of the Bible. Here is what every one of our main ambitions should be this week. Like, this is the big E on the I chart. This is like the thing that we have to organize everything else in our life around. Here is the big thing. I want to give the next week of my life to knowing this God. The next month, the next year, the rest of my life, there is nothing more pressing, there's nothing more urgent than you saying to God, I want to know you, oh God. This is what my life is about. Maybe I could say it this way. I want to look you in the eye today and try to convince you of this, just try to encourage you with this. Do not settle for anything less than God. I just want to say that to you again. Do not settle for anything less than God. You were made for him. So, so don't settle for marriage. Don't settle for a, a kid. Don't settle for this hobby. Don't, for this, accomp you were made for him. That, that's who you were made for. Make that the ambition of your life, knowing him. If you put anything else as the main ambition of your life, you are then sabotaging your life. So this morning, we all have a choice to make. Option number one, we can keep living with God at arm's length in our life. That's option one. Some of us came in that way, and you have the option of leaving that way, just keeping God kind of on the outside of your life. Here is option two. Today can start a new season in your life, and you today can begin a new season of you opening your life, your heart to God. You can cry out to God today. Oh God, more than anything else in the world, I want to know you. So whatever it takes, whatever you have to do to keep my heart open to you, the living God, so that I can know you, the one I was made for, whatever you have to do, God, I am a yes to that. Yes, God, I want to know you. So let me finish here. Why do people not open themselves up to God? Why do we keep God at arm's length and sort of live with God on the outside of our life? Why do we do that? Why do people do that? In one word, here's the word I would use to say why. It's fear. Fear. By opening yourself up to Jesus, part of what happens when you do that 
is you lose control of your life. You don't get to call the shots anymore. You don't get to plan out your life in the way that you think it should go. You lose control of your life in the moment you invite Jesus in. And Jesus takes control of your life when you invite him in. It's one of the main reasons why we keep God on the outside. And I, I feel this, it's like this morning, I just woke up asking the Lord and saying to the Lord, I want you more than anything else, so whatever it takes. And that is such a scary prayer to pray because God will take us up on whatever it takes, right? He'll do whatever is needed to keep our heart open and to open our heart to him. So I wanna finish with this um, scene from C.S. Lewis in uh, one of the books that make up the Chronicles of Narnia series. It's The Silver Chair. And, and there's a reason throughout that series why C.S. Lewis um, pictures Jesus and uses the imagery of a lion for Jesus, right? Um, here's the reason that he does it, because Jesus is a lion. That's what it feels like. A lion is scary, right? A lion is, a lion is not tameable by us. And in one of the stories, a girl named Jill is dying of thirst and she breaks out into this clearing and the clearing has a stream in it. And her heart is just leaping toward this. I mean, she is about to die of thirst more than anything else in the world. She wants to drink something. But here's the only problem. There is a lion, Aslan. Jesus is by the stream. And a lion being by the stream is a big deal, isn't it? I mean, just you picture yourself there. Are you going to go drink with a lion sitting right there beside the stream? So get the picture. Here's what she needs. Here is the thing that will satisfy her. But it's scary, isn't it? It's scary to open herself up like that. She doesn't know what the lion's going to do to her if she goes and drinks. Has no idea what's going to happen. She loses control. And then here's how the story goes. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do it, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, will you promise not to do anything to me if I, if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. He's scary, but he's God. He is the one you were made for and there is 
no other. So really here is our only option today. It's to step into the clearing and go drink from the stream, amen? Why don't you pray with me? give you just a moment to just let the Lord interact with you and to speak to you and for you to open yourself up to him. And this is what I'm praying for all of us today is that we would take a decisive step today. And for many of us in this room, that decisive step looks like us crying out to God today and saying, God, I want to know you. You have revealed yourself in the scriptures so that I could know you, and I want to do that. I want to make that the ambition of my life, like the organizing principle of my life. Like if I don't get anything else done this week, the thing I want to see happen is for me to know more of you, my God. So God, whatever you have to do, whatever it takes, God, I want to know you. You could just cry out to God and say that to him in your own words this morning. For others in this room, the journey to knowing God starts with a huge moment of faith. It starts with us turning from our sin and throwing our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the only way we can know God. When When we bank our life on him, stake our life on him. And when we do that, when we turn from our sin and throw our life on Jesus, God rescues us. He brings us into relationship with him. He brings us into his family and calls us his son, his daughter. And that's the decisive step that some need to take. It's that first step toward God, turning from our sin and coming to Jesus. And if that's you and just the words that the Lord would give you now, just cry out to him. Say that to him, God, I'm turning from my sin. Yes to Jesus, here is my life, rescue me, save me. And God stands so ready right now to do that rescuing work. So cry out to him, holler to him, scream out to him today, yes, God, here I am, save me. So God, would you do that saving work? God, would you do it? God, would you make us a church who knows our God? Would you make us a church who wants to invite other people into that knowing? God, we want to know you, the most important being in the universe. There's nothing more important than that. And it's in the great name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen.